Hey y'all, and welcome back to Southern Fried Spooky, the podcast home of all things Southern Spooky, and this week, Iconic! Iconic! Thank you. Mm -hmm. This is your Carolina girl, Heather. And I'm your Florida man, Tony. We invite you to join our Facebook page, and feel free to comment. Always. Also on Instagram, we have a Patreon. Mm -hmm. Please leave us a few stars on your podcast platform. Indeed. So when you think of a witch, what do you imagine? For some of us, we think of the pagan woman practicing old ways, collecting herbs, and whispering blessings. But around Halloween, you see them everywhere. Um, no. I think of a woman in her underwear crying (laughs) while you're trying to avoid her. Sorry, that's a video game reference that gives me the shivers. (laughs) I have questions. The iconic image of a standard witch has her shrouded in black... She herself is sometimes green, sporting a conical hat. Mm -hmm. She is old, wrinkled, crested with a hooked nose. Maybe you imagine Margaret Hamilton's classic performance as the Wicked Witch of the West. Which she was amazing. 1939 film of Wizard of Oz. Yes. And that isn't how she looked in the novels, mind you, but that's, you know. And for those of us who grew up on slasher flicks, Oz's Wicked Witch was the stuff of nightmares. Or do you imagine someone kinder, Professor McGonagall, for example? Yeah. But why do we imagine that witches look like this? There are many modern pagans reclaiming the title, and I can assure you this is inaccurate. I do wear a lot of black, but not exclusively. Yeah, you're a fairy goth mother. (laughs) And sometimes we wear the classic hat, the witch hat, but kind of ironically. Steeple hat is what it's called. Well... So we have invited Brad Lee mm-hmm. um, to share with us a new lecture that he's developed. Brad, you may recall, plays. I was about to say, I'm fairly sure they know if they've listened to us for a while, they know who Brad is. He plays Fletcher Moon out at the Carolina Renaissance Festival, mm-hmm. which just started last week Indeed. and goes up till the weekend before Thanksgiving. November seventeenth is our last weekend. If you are in or near the Carolinas, hint, hint. Master Moon spends his non-singing time elucidating the patrons about the history of beer. Indeed. And one of the newer aspects that he's added to his repertoire is the history of the purveyors of beer back in the day, the alewife. So dare I ask, how did you start the entire lecture series on the history of beer? Years and years and years and years ago, when I first started working at the Virginia Renaissance Fair, I was uh, working on the staff, and my band was hired to play one weekend, the Pirates Royale. And so I was there every weekend just, you know, helping out as as a assistant. No, I was a consultant then when I first started. Anyway, so... Um, Something important. <laughs> no, no. So um, we had, it was early enough in the life of the fair that we didn't readily have enough act to fill all the stages all day. So we came up with some filler acts. And one of the filler acts was a set I was asked to do. They said, Craig, uh, can you go sing in the pub for half an hour? Three times a day. I said, uh, sure. (laughs) (laughs) And so I thought, well, I could go see, sing sea shanties, but I didn't want to do that. I 
sing those songs with the band. I know other songs too. In fact, I, I have a penchant for drinking songs. Oh. So I decided it'll be a drink. The other fine yeah. Irish genre. Good Lord. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so a drinking song set, it started off as. You know, the narrator in me always wanted to have a backstory with this. And this backstory suddenly evolving but it was really more about talking about the songs that i sang because i like knowing the back stories of of song and so i was singing a song tell the story or vice versa uh and i realized that i was kind of doing more of a, a presentation set than a drinking song set <laughs> and i thought okay good let's see where this goes one of the songs I sang was a song I learned from a dear friend, Peter, who was Troubadour when I first started working fairs. And the song is called The Barley Moe. And it is about all the measures that are used in a pub. And so I brought that song in the act. And I thought, it'd be interesting if I knew some stories about, about these measures. And the first one I looked up is a measure called a jackpot and the jackpot is two ounces and i the first bit of information i found out was that the jackpot is called the jackpot because jack is a very common man's nickname in england and has been for centuries and so the jackpot was the working man's round of spirits. It was the bar shot. Um, So it had a great name, but I thought jackpot. It's interesting it's called a jackpot. I wonder if there's a connection. And sure enough, when you made a bar bet of a friendly wager in a tavern, the winner of the bar bet would be awarded a round of spirits. So if you win the bar bet, you win the jackpot. And that word stuck. Wow. Okay. See, I never knew that before. That's awesome. We have to sit through his lecture. It's if we can. It's yeah, awesome. Yes. Well, I found that awesome too. I mean, that's just <laughs> too damn cool. And so I started researching all of the measures: the pint pot, half pint, jill pot, jackpot, jigger pot, mouthful, and the brown bowl. And then above that, the quart pot, the pottle, the gallon, firkin, the cask, the barrel, the uh, hogshead, the buttload. All of these have, <laughs> yeah, these are all measures. Uh, all of these have have stories behind them, and they're fantastic stories. So that song suddenly became a whole set, and people seemed to like it. So I decided to just start researching and finding out everything I possibly could. Because I already knew a bunch of little beer and alcohol factoids (laughs) that had gotten me free drinks over the years. I researched all of those to get their bona fides, and um, I'm just constantly looking for stuff. And that was uh, maybe 15 years ago, maybe 14 years ago. Uh, Ever since then, the library of libational information has just been growing. And I'll ask my audience, I, I say, not only bring me your question, but also bring me your factoids. If you've got a story for me, please share it. I've learned a lot of really cool stuff from my audiences. But that's how it grew. And I've always had a passion for public gatherings, 
I've always loved things like toasts because it's something that a whole group of us would participate in, and it's usually in honor of something. I mean, it's there's a fellowship aspect to the oh, culture yeah. of libation, and the story goes so deep and is so important to the development of human beings that I just feel like I need to get this information out. It's a genuine passion of mine that I really enjoy. And it's fascinating. Oh, yeah. And I don't even like beer, but I love listening to the story. You don't have to like beer to appreciate the act. The act is really more about the pedigree of fermentation why it's important to everyone, whether you drink or not. I've always Uh, liked social history, and I've also always enjoyed language and how it develops and what we keep, even after we don't know the origin anymore (laughs) as readily. Absolutely. I I would say probably 60% of the content in my act is based on the etymology of a word. Well, and if, you, if you think about it, fermentation is one of the first sciences ever. The foundation of civilization. It really is. <laughs> and you just pointed out a valuable link I bring up in my act. Fermentation. Okay. The word comes from the word firmament, heaven. Oh, oh, okay. Because fermentation from the very earliest years of the Christian church was considered a living miracle. Oh. And that allowed brewing and the people who brewed to dabble in science while brewing and not be looked at askance. Yeah. See, the living history of fermentation was, first of all, a um, miracle is not to be questioned. A miracle is not to be investigated. A miracle is not to be doubted. A miracle is to be accepted and be thankful for. That's simple. But fermentation was the one exception that the church allowed. It was the living miracle that anyone could experience and play a role in any day of the week. You know, because fermentation is entropy. It's it's biological breaking down. It's rotting. Yeah, it's okay. a yeah, it's a particular kind of rot. But it's uh, a natural uh, process. A natural process, exactly. Um, it wasn't invented. Yep. It wasn't discovered. It was happening long before we ever existed. Yep. So and you you may be the person to ask this. Correct me if I'm wrong. Hmm. In the 15 and 1600s. The Catholic Church was the biggest purveyor of mead, weren't they? The Catholic Church, really, uh, before the modern era, the Catholic Church controlled the business of almost everything. Uh, That is very true. (laughs) They had their hands in everything. But brewing, brewing, while there was a lot of brewing being done by the church, there was also a lot... the majority of the brewing was being done by alewives. Now, an alewife is a uh, a housewife manages the house. That means she manages the hearth. She is in charge of all the cooking, and she is in charge of all the brewing. Brewing was very important to every household because brewed ale, along with baked bread, was the staple diet for most everyone in Western culture when you're talking about the barley based oh yeah uh, cultures and western culture has its strongest roots in in the barley corn plant and so 
most of everyone's diet was was ale and bread. So that means that the church couldn't couldn't brew enough uh for everyone if they if they tried it makes sense that most of the brewing was being done by non-church people and that became a point of contention later on in history but it was the status quo for such a long time oh yeah and out at living history your lovely lady does seem to be dressed as and plays a a nail wife does she not yes she does I and, play and love her outfit. <laughs> yeah, I I do too. I I have a penchant for that alewifey <laughs> tall hat look. <laughs> it is yeah. a distinct look. I, it is. I play Fletcher Moon and she plays my wife Barley Moon. Barley oh. Moon is an alewife. Um and she is dressed in an outfit that has historic footnotes there's famous print of a an archetypal alewife supposedly from the oxfordshire area so i patterned her outfit after okay her name was mother louse now okay now i have a character question does barley moon belong to the pirates royale no that's a that's a tony curiosity (laughs) (laughs) no she is actually a dancer She's a belly dancer, and I've been fortunate enough to have her working with me in the culture of beer for several years now, and she has really embraced the character of the alewife. She has embraced researching uh, information about the alewife. She's brought me stuff I don't know, and that's just so damn cool. I love that. <laughs> that is awesome. Um, now, do do you speak to, um, I don't know their names specifically, but Ray and Cornelia, the beer brewers out there? Yes. That's awesome. Sure do. Yeah. Um, I think they're backstage brewing, at least at festival. Oh, okay. But yes. I but I do remember seeing your lovely lady um, when she was, was at True Spice Road. I remember seeing her dance. Mm-hmm. That's her troop. It's been a while, but I remember it. We have our hands in all kinds of pies. You know what? You know what? I would prefer your hands other than some other ones. (laughs) (laughs) I do try and keep them clean. Which is good. We appreciate that. So what prompted you to include the specific history of the alewife into your tales and history? I'm a bit of a drama queen. <laughs> well, the thing is, Best answer. if it if it hits on politics that I feel strongly about, oh man, I I dive right in. It, it's like crack for, for me. It's like, <laughs> oh my god, there's social injustice. I need to read about this. <laughs> I might I like that with true crime, and I don't know why. <laughs> you know, we we all have our things. And uh, one of my things is knowing as much as I can about the, the stuff that humans have done to each other. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, I just can't get enough of that because it makes me want to be a better person. And I love that. If we if we forget our past, we're doomed to repeat it, right? Yep. Well, if you think about it, when I was learning about the history of brewing, okay, predominantly in Western culture, I was fascinated to find out that it was really women who, from the get-go, were really in charge of brewing. It was part of their purview. Early on, it had been established that the male of the household 
would be in charge of the the outside of the home, the protection, uh, hunting, gathering, fixing things, yeah, all of those things. The, the expendable roles, yeah, yeah. The expendable roles. <laughs> I'm going to remember that. That's going <laughs> to that's going to end up in the act. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying, it's like, honey, I'll stay here and brew the beer if you go out and kill the wild bear. Right. (laughs) The expendable roles. (laughs) Well, so the women were in charge of the home, and they're the ones who who really made it a home. They made it a sanctuary, a citadel, the place of comfort and safety. And part of what they did was they made the food that nourished and kept the family alive. And they also brewed all the brew um, because every family consumed an immense amount. Think of how many drinks you have in a day. If you add together your morning coffee, your tea, maybe you have a soda in the morning. Maybe you have an energy drink, uh, water, milk, beer, cocktails. Throughout one day, all the different kinds of drinks you may have. And then think about if you lived in the 16th century, just about all of that would be replaced by ale. Oh, yeah. That's how much ale the average person drank in a day. It was their source of safe, safe water. And it was a huge source of their daily nutrition. Barley is a superfood. Oh, absolutely. If you ferment it, it's more so. And consequently, we are, we are a society that was largely raised over thousands of years to form a dietary base and, and an economic model to make the dietary base work. And so that's why I say we're a barley based culture. Oh, absolutely. We are. That was a big part. Everyone drank it. Everyone ate it. They drank and ate large amounts of it, and there was no escaping that. Well, so, not to mention, not to mention, if you if you grind barley up, you would you could actually put it on the bread after it was baked, and it would form a crust. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and they would take barley reeds, and that's what they would use as brooms. Barley has yes. been huge. In fact, the broom. The broom has been the symbol of ale brewing since before Roman times. Oh, yes. Okay, that was something I did not know, but we are definitely getting into that parallel of alewife to witch. Yeah. That's where we're getting to. (laughs) That's a particularly tawdry subject. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I, 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 I wanted to tell you before we got onto the alewife witch thing Uh, that um there was one time that i did unfortunately try morning without coffee and the trial is still pending but you know (laughs) (laughs) i don't know that i could do that i (laughs) yeah i am i I, somebody posted something the other day and i loved it it's not procrastinating it's procaffeinating (laughs) and i will not do anything until i've had coffee first you Procaffeinate, then you procrastinate because that's <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, I would like to get back to oh yes, go ahead. Images of oh, Halloween and the alewife. So you asked me how I got on uh, the the alewife kit. Yeah, yeah. Well, as I was saying from the get go, it's been a woman's world. Now, when I say it's a woman's world, referring to brewing, 
I'm talking about they're the ones who who made all the all the great innovations. They're the ones who improved upon the whole thing. They're the ones who nurtured this along into something that that eventually became very economically viable in our culture and, and became gigantic. So I think, okay, I look at who brews now, and I know very few female brewers, certainly very few professional female brewers. And I had to wonder, I started to look into uh, how the change happened. And it's very interesting because I found that um, documentation shows that there really wasn't a big fervor against females being in charge of brewing. There were male brewers, yes. There just weren't very many of them. Most of the professional brewers in the world at the time of Elizabeth I easily were women. Uh, and it was about 85, yeah, 85% total. And um, that's because all the men were off doing stupid shit and dying. <laughs> well, see, something happened in history where men suddenly had more leeway. I said earlier that the church basically had most all of the economics in the business world tied up for their own good use they made the biggest profit off of off of wool harvesting and processing in england they sold lots of ale lots of mead lots of wine and the list goes on and on and on but things changed uh and independent businessmen started to come into fashion during the elizabethan era and they started acquiring more more independent power that was secular in its origins. In other words, it was not controlled by the church any longer. And that was that was because of the Reformation and Henry's splitting uh, with the uh, church. And one of the things he did was he took businesses out of the hands of the Catholics in his country because he wanted to abolish that. And uh, he gave these businesses to uh, his friends and himself. And uh, so a class of actual businessmen started to rise. And as they got more prominence, as they did better, uh, as their businesses grew, they were looking for other opportunities. And what's this? Everybody drinks ale. In fact, everyone drinks a huge amount of it. But these women seem to be cashing in on it. What can we do to fed up? <laughs> Thus stepped in Anheuser-Busch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Almost that bad. Almost that bad. Now, what they had to do was very daunting, though, because you have something that's been the status quo since before time remembered that this was the purview of women. And there was no argument. There was a great amount of respect for that for thousands of years. So how do you change a status quo that has existed for that long? Well, you got to bring God into it. And thankfully, because of the Protestant Reformation, lots of little offshoot, offshoot set of the, uh, of the newly formed Protestant Church of England, popped up, and among them were the Puritans. 
And the Puritans brought back in style, in vogue, an old Catholic pastime of hunting down and burning witches. And it was the last foray that Christendom had in hunting down and actually prosecuting and burning witches. In fact, it it coincides uh, very much with the Salem witchcraft trials that happened here in America. Well, that was a reflection of what was happening back home. So that's, That's what I was thinking was... You know, uh, Mary Beth, guess what? We have this new mead and or this new ale, and it's going to taste like strawberry. She's a witch burner! It's like, come on now. It, it wasn't even that imaginative. What they did was this. They realized that there was this movement brewing, not with a majority of people, but a very, very, very loud minority of people who were hunting down witches. And what they were doing was they were working on the passions of the madding crowd. They were getting people hyped up and frightened about things. Well, the um, the brewers who wanted to use this to their own good saw an opportunity because 60 years earlier, a very popular play was written and performed in the years since then all over the British Isles. It was the most popular play of its time, Macbeth. And the scene, the very, very famous tantalizing scene of that uh, was the witch scene. Double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. That captured everyone's imagination. Now, the only, only description of these three witches were that, one, they were, were hideous. Two, they were bent over a cauldron. Three, they dealt in potions and spells. Anyway, everyone had this in their minds. The witch. They're hideous. They use cauldrons. They make potions and spells. And they control men. And that was all they needed to start with. They thought, hey, alewives use cauldrons. We have a starting point. So then they just started to fill crap in. Okay, I mentioned earlier, Mother Laos, a very famous print that was done in the 1640s was she was literally the poster child (laughs) for why you should never buy your ale from an alewife. And what they did was they came up with this fictitious character, Mother Laos, And they gave her a family coat of arms. It was a shield with three lice on it. Well, there's never been a coat of arms with three lice on it that I know of. I don't think Laos is a surname in English. So, obviously, made up. But the, the image of this woman in the poster is very archetype. It's a look that was adopted by many alewives all over for specific reasons. Now, one thing, of course, she'll have her her pint and her pottle in her hands, uh, showing that she is serving and offering ale. Okay. The next thing she has is over top of her jacket and her collar, she has a big Elizabethan rough collar. Now, in 1640, the rough had fallen out of fashion, 
years ago. So it stuck out. It was an out of time thing. So she's wearing this ruff and the ruff is outdated by a few decades. So she's going to stick out. She's wearing a ginormous tall black hat with a really wide brim. Another fashion that for women, not for men necessarily, but for women, uh, have been out of fashion for over a century. So these are two things that stick out in the crowd. Well, the reason she would wear these, she would wear these when she was doing business, especially if she was at a market fair where she's bringing her wares to sell to all the people who are coming to purchase things at market fair. So it's crowded. She wants to stick out. She wears her tall black hat. She wears her ruff around her neck. She'll bring her broom because the broom is the symbol of fresh ale. When, you know, once upon a time when Alewife had a batch of ale ready for sale, for sale, she would take her broom and stick it above her front door. That had the effect of the hot, hot and ready hot, donuts. <laughs> the, the hot donuts already signed, literally. So that was highly, <laughs> if you saw the broom, then you knew you were dealing with an alewife. She might have one of her cats with her. Alewives store a lot of grain in their homes because their their brewery is their home. And their mice everywhere. <laughs> yes. Yes. So it was not it was not at all strange for alewives to have cats. And she may have a favorite one that follows her when she goes into town or or to market fair. She'll have potions with her because an alewife deals in potions. The potions are used for flavorants, for preservatives. They were very knowledgeable about making elixirs and potions and and components for the brewing uh, because most of them were herbalists. Uh, A lot of them were healers, in fact. A lot of them delivered babies, mended broken bones. A lot of them counseled. These people were not just brewers. They were important people in the community. They were respected. They were beloved. And they made money. And for a woman, especially if she was single, to be able to command that much respect. How unorthodox! Entirely, completely unorthodox. So all of these things, they decided, well, you know what? I bet these are all things that witches do. And it was easy to convince the public that the two were the same, alewives and witches. Suddenly, witches had a uniform that they never had before. The tall black hat, the broom, the cat, the cauldron. Oh yeah, like were... everything everything associated with the typical Halloween witch. To this very day, yes. Yeah. It's it's insulting. I want to take this opportunity to wish you both and everybody listening a happy Halloween. Awesome. It, it's the most wonderful time <laughs> of the year. Indeed, so. yes. Halloween is my Christmas. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, Brad, you and your lady have a lovely evening, and thank you so much, and we'll definitely see you this weekend. You are very welcome, and I will see you in the verse. Oh, yes, yes, you will, as always. Thank you, sir, so much. Good night. 
Well, this is another half hour, 45 minutes of your life drained away. And listening to Brad is never a drain. No, that's very true. Yeah. We'd love to hear what comments you have brewing on our Facebook page. (laughs) Just look for Southern Fried Spooky. And be sure to leave us a bubbly good five-star review if you are so inclined. (laughs) With the puns! Join us next week for whatever weirdness we get up to then. Indeed. Probably something Halloween-based. Oh, yeah. It is October, after all. In the meantime, I'm your Carolina girl, Heather. And I'm your Florida man, Tony. And we are Southern Southern Fried Fried Spooky. Spooky. Until next week. Bye, y'all. I'm telling you, it's going to be bring back the wife on the front. And I dream it, I dr- or I drink it, I know it. Like <laughs> that, that it, we need a shirt. We can make this happen. Down with the patriarchy from eons ago. We have the technology. We can make it better. I have a cricket. You do have a cricket. I can make a shirt. Oh yeah. Oh, <laughs> um, I was thinking of a lucky cricket. <laughs>